0: Hello, welcome to Glittership episode 66 for March 5th, 2019. This is your host, Keffy, and I'm super excited to share this story with you. Today we have a Glittership original, Tell the Phoenix Fox, Tell the Tortoise Fruit, by Cynthia So, and a poem by Chanter, The Lamentations of Old Money. This episode is part of the newest Glittership issue, which was just released and is unfortunately very late. The Summer 2018 issue of Glittership is available for purchase at glittership.com slash buy and on Kindle, Nook, Kobo, and now Gumroad. If you're one of our Patreon supporters, you should have access to the new issue waiting for you when you log in. For everyone else, it's $2.99, and all of our back issues are $1.49. Glittership is also a part of the Audible Trial Program. This means that just by listening to Glittership, you are eligible for a free 30-day membership on Audible and a free audiobook to keep. If you're looking for an excellent book of short queer stories to listen to, you should check out Bitter Waters by Chaz Brenchley. This book is full of speculative fiction featuring gay men and was awarded the Lambda Award for Best LGBT Speculative Fiction. To download Bitter Waters for free today, go to www.audibletrial.com slash glittership, or choose another book if you're in the mood for something else. Up first, our poem. Chanter is a proud Wisconsinite who took flight, alas, not literally, from her originating small town, headed for the big city's more accepting climes, and never looked back. She's proudly asexual, demisensual, and some flavor of bi or pan-romantic that's as yet proving difficult to define. She's also brand squeaky new, emphasis occasionally on squeaky, to official publication. Besides holding down a day job, she's an active shortwave radio DXer and ham operator, as well as a crowdfunded author currently based mainly on Dreamwidth. The Lamentations of Old Money by Chanter Jennifer doesn't want a white dress. She doesn't want a church, an altar, a tangle of coast-grown flowers, sisters in matching silk, trained doves, stained glass, twenty overlaid colognes and splintering sunlight, rehearsed organ music, and recorded pop shorthand warbling through weak speakers, biting April breezes, overthought hair and makeup, snow in hardwood aisles. Jennifer doesn't want a wild time. She doesn't want hips around shoulders, tools and toys, filthy supplications and hot-breath ideas, hours between bedsheets, sticky aftermaths, bruises as tawdry mementos in hard-to-reach places, hands and mouths, teeth and tongues and fluids, too many entrances, the junctions of legs and legs and legs. Jennifer doesn't want hard edges. Not for her leashes, spike heels, and bad-girl pretense. Not for her the bite of two demanding fingertips, grinding at her biceps, cold and bruising at her cheeks, clamped into the flesh of her wrists. Not for her orders with teeth both behind and in them, Whip cracks, in voice and deed. Not for her daddy's little anything, mommy's little anything, a schoolgirl's life, a paddle's life, princess, flower, whore. Not for her latex and custom-made chains, iron protocol and a child's tear-stung punishments, revoked names and Halloween's expected trappings. Not for her anonymity, Not for her all of the spice and none of the wine to mull with it. What Jennifer wants fits on a two-sided coin. One side. Jennifer wants nights asleep in a hayloft, clothes on, with siblings in arms and black coffee, and cotton coarse humor and blood to her left and right. Jennifer wants a uniform, once honest lamplight with a wick beneath it, once a hundred songs and a hand-tuned fiddle, a guitar played at a campfire, laces and burlap, branches and homespun wool, antique language, tactile camaraderie, respected rank, an unresented ceremony, world-spanning care so personal it can't be feigned, so simultaneously subtle and frank, that it confuses, so elegant it's genuine, so casual it's ancient. To be fair, that one does drive me utterly mad of an afternoon, but God be good, dear fellow, why wouldn't I? Jennifer wants a certain amount of ignored anachronism, wants a world where, dear fellow, as affectionate, genderless address, is just fine, where she's a good man to have beside you in a fight is perfectly acceptable wording, but where the phrase, man up, is both soundly off limits and considered decades or centuries distant, depending. A world where, at the end of the day, it's quietly acknowledged and otherwise near forgotten that, oh yes, that one there, she's a girl, as in woman, as in, see also, dame, noun. Example 1. To go to work for the war effort, on the road under cover of darkness, on the air for the BBC, or on the battlefield, firing decisive cannon-blast volleys like a real dame. Example 2 I'm a girl, and mostly I prefer other dames to fellas, mostly, but when I don't, I kinda have a type, ahem. Somewhere a coin is balancing on its edge. And on the flip side, Jennifer wants to write a hundred stories and bind them in hard covers, wants modern skirts to her ankles, comfortable jeans and blue corduroy coat sleeves, wants city streets, steel toes and long hair, near distant clock tower bells, silver jewelry bought by her own hand in her own name, a rocking chair made to last for decades, a damn fine radio setup. The solid strength of a wooden door at her back, after she and she, he and she, they and she, after they've crashed through it and, fully clothed, battered it closed behind them. Both Sides Jennifer wants her wrists pressed flat against that wooden door, all benevolent force, all warmth, all welcome gravity, all burgeoning life in orbit, all the steady strength of a star in symbiosis with a planet. Jennifer wants voices and voices and voices, innocent details and muscle melting, breath-stealing turns of phrase, sound serving as light serving as lodestone to the iron in every millimeter of her, except except for a bare and unbared few. One side. Jennifer wants the wind at her back, a message, a mission, a reason and a warning, miles and miles and miles rolled out under a sky filled with leaden stars, a purpose and a signal, a gesture, an anticipation of command that tenses her like a bowstring before, wait, wait, wait for it, rush for it. Fire! Both sides. Jennifer wants to be eager, to be teeming under her skin with silver, wants a reason and a cause and a leader who's fallible by self-description, near matchless by others' accounts, wants to thrill to rank, surname, simple designation, wants to know at exactly what she's aimed, near precisely what will happen when she hits, and that yes, the trusted, entirely human hands of gravity to a planet are the only hands pulling, or perhaps, perhaps, the only hands directing those pulling her string. She wants to be entirely, mindfully, consensually willing to be fired like a longbow. And the flip side, Jennifer wants to bring a girlfriend home to her parents, wants to curl into accented words like their warm compresses and quilts, wants to make promises and keep them, find each other's keys, play each other's record collections, brush cat hair off each other's sweaters, adore and be adored forever, not live together. Jennifer wants to never grow tired of hearing herself say, This is Elaine or this is Kim, or this is, this is my better half. Both sides. Jennifer wants orders that both delight her and fill her with clean purpose, stoking a fire that consumes every inch of her, except, except for the space between her thighs. Jennifer wants the intersection where bravery meets well-placed loyalty, Jennifer wants to know exactly what she's doing, wants to be utterly sure of her cause, to make up her entire mind on her own, and then raise her voice, and throw herself into the thing with abandon, because yes, this is right, this is reason, this is exuberance, and happiness, and righteous fury blazing, this is bright history, this is justice, this is one coin, with two sides. Jennifer wants the rarity that is liking of, love for, acceptance, and welcome of both the existence and the admission of her two sides, even when she's difficult, even when she's horrible, even when she's irrational, even when she's just, so most people would say, plain off-baseline weird, especially when she's weird. All of the wine to mull with all of the spice, ground by capable hands, hands ringed in silver, hands at the ends of corduroy sleeves, the sleeves of a coat that may have, once or twice, been a makeshift pillow in a hayloft, after a night's ride, after a night's mission. Cynthia So is a queer Chinese writer from Hong Kong, living in London, she spent her undergrad crying over poets that have been dead for 2,000 years, give or take. She's graduated now, but still crying. Her short fiction has appeared in Anathema, Arsenica, and Cast of Wonders. She can be found on Twitter at synesthete That's C-Y-N-A-E-S-T-H-E-T-E. Zora Mae Quynh is a genderqueer Vietnamese writer whose short stories, poems, and essays can be found in The Sea's Hours*, Genius Loci, The Spirit of Place, POC, Destroy Science Fiction, Luminescent Threads, Connections to Octavia Butler, Strange Horizons, and Terraform. Visit her, Z-M-Q-U-Y-N-H dot Rivia is a Black and Vietnamese pansexual teen who has a passion for reading, video games, and music. She says, I'm gender-questioning, but also questioning whether or not I'm questioning. Isn't gender just a concept? You can hear her vocals on Strange Horizons podcast for When She Sings.
1: Tell the Phoenix Fox, Tell the Turtle's Fruit by Cynthia So. On the day Sanai turned nine years old, there was no joyful feast. A monster burst from the sea that night and ate five people. The Marians gathered upon the shore to watch this, as they did every appeasement. Sanai's mother covered Sanai's eyes, but Sanai still heard the screams, the crunch of brittle bone between teeth, the wet gulp of gluttonous throats. Sanai prayed to the goddess that the warrior Yumue might rise from the dead and defeat the monster yet again. No warrior came, but a hand grasped Sanai's and squeezed, a hand as small as her own. When it was over, Sanai's mother murmured, now we will be safe for another 10 years. She removed her hands from Sanai's eyes and Sanai flinched from the gore before her. The older children always said this was why Mariah's beaches were pink. But she hadn't been convinced until she saw the sands, now drenched with fresh blood, dark red on dusk pink. She looked at the girl next to her, the girl who was holding her hand. And she saw a determination in those eyes, as bright as the moon, as bright as her own. A determination to make sure that this would never happen again. I'm waru the girl said. What's your name? Sanai looked down at her clasped hands and told Awaru her name. The Temple of the Moon Goddess is the most beautiful place on the island. There are no straight lines and sharp angles within, but everything is curved and gentle and swooping. Shades of blue deepen as one enters through the front, the colors of twilight intensifying into midnight, accented by silver and broken up by patches of brilliant white that gleam through the dark. A pool of water from the moon lake shimmers in the atrium. Frosty glass cut into lunar shapes hang from the ceiling in long, glittering threads. All of it is flawless craftsmanship, except for the wall of the prayer hall. The hall is perfectly circular, spanning a semicircle on the wall is a painting of Yumue, splendid in lustrous armor, wielding a sword as black as her hair and an expression as fierce as the sea. The sand of the Moran beach is pink beneath her feet, and she glares at the monster that towers over her. Its writhing, many-headed form is etched into the blackness of the night. The moon hangs above them, solemn and full. The other half of the wall is blank, its contents effaced and forgotten. Warrior confronts Monster. What's the rest of the story? Monster leaves Island alone for a hundred years. Warrior dies, and Monster comes back. It is starved and salivating with too many teeth. Every ten years it must feed. Is that what was on the other half of the wall? Tanai's mother buys her Carisian books to read because Carisian is an important language to learn. In Carisian tales, monsters are always slain. Heroes sometimes journey into foreign lands and kill other people's monsters for them, and they are rewarded with riches and brides and thrones. Tanai is ten years old, but she knows this. There are Carusian's living in Mariah. Mariah was owned by Carusia for hundreds of years and then there was a treaty of some sort not long before Sinai was born and now Mariah belongs to the Marians again. The Carusian's came here to their island. They governed the island and lived here for centuries. But no Crusian ever killed the monster for them. Yet here they are on the island still with their wealth, their power, the Marian wives.
2: Mother? Have any Carusians ever been fed to the monster?
1: Sinai asks. Her mother frowns. Can't we talk about something more cheerful? Sinai just wants to know how to defeat the monster. If no Carusians will come to their aid, then who will? The old library of Mariah is a burnt husk with a blackened facade, secluded from the town and set into the side of a hill, a little away from the moon lake. Sinai doesn't understand why it hasn't been torn down to make way for something new when fire ravaged it long ago. But perhaps its remote location preserved it. Evidently, the Marians of yore prized a peaceful reading environment. Sinai can hear nothing of the bustling town here, only a chorus of birds. She also doesn't understand why she is letting Oaru drag her into the grim ruins. Inside, the half-collapsed roof lets in some lemony sunlight. But there is an unpleasant smell like overripe tortoise fruit, and rows of charred shells loom in menace.
2: It went this way,
1: Owaru says, and drops to her hands and knees to crawl through a tiny hole in the wall. Sunai sighs and follows. She gets stuck, her shoulders being broader than Owaru's, but Owaru wrenches her free with a painful yank. She emerges into a cramped and airless space, illuminated only by the glow of the phoenix fox, which is swishing its enormous tail back and forth sweeping away layers of ash and dust from the wall behind it. Sanai coughs, but Oaro grabs her arm excitedly.
2: There's something on the wall!
1: Oaro leans over the fox and scrubs at the wall with her sleeve, gradually revealing the faded colors of a painting, a woman in an ethereal blue gown, sitting with a brush in her hand. A long scroll of paper unfurls before her, inked in an illegible swirling script.
2: Doesn't that look a bit like Hyoumue?
1: Owaru asks. It seems impossible that this serene woman should resemble the powerful warrior in the temple, but she does. It's in the proud tilt of her jaw, maybe. Sanai reaches out and traces the woman's chin. She has never been permitted to touch the temple mural, though she has longed to.
2: What is she doing?
1: Owaru wonders.
2: Writing poetry?
1: Sanai ventures. The phoenix fox smirks at her and stretches lazily before slipping out through the hole in the wall, leaving them in absolute darkness. Owaru yelps. I've got to catch that fox! She tugs at Sanai's elbow, and Sanai reluctantly goes with her. It's as much a struggle to get out as it was to get in, and the fox is nowhere to be seen by the time Sanai has wriggled through. The new library of Mariah is a clean and functional building, centrally located right next to the town hall. Most of the space is dedicated to Carusian books, with the Marayan literature section tucked into a small corner. So I asks the librarian to help her find Yumue's poems. Yumue wasn't a poet, the librarian says, puzzled. But uh, I can recommend poetry from the same time period. Not much of it survives, what with the old library burning down. But there is some, and it's very beautiful. Do you know how to read classical Mirayan, though?" In the end, Sanai walks away from the library with a few books and a leaflet for free classical Mirayan lessons. By the time she turns 12, she has read all the classical Mirayan poetry that the library has to offer, and all the modern Mirayan poetry, too. She tries her hand at writing her own poem. She writes about Yumue and the monster, Yumue's husband wrongfully convicted of murdering a man chained to a pillar on the shore, awaiting his execution. Yumoe weeping at his feet, the moon trembling in the sky, the goddess watching. Yumoya dressing herself in armor, carefully lacing her breastplate, looping her belt through the buckle, wetting her sword and sheathing it, her hair tied back with a ribbon given to her by her husband, her boots hitting the ground, her armor jangling, the monster howling, crashing back into the sea where it nurses its wounds for a hundred years. Sanai wins a competition at school with this poem, and gets a shiny badge that she pins to her satchel. She is fourteen, and she writes about nature, trees touching, sands blushing, the ocean embracing the coasts, leaves tender for one another, mountains asleep next to each other, the moon observing everything. She is sixteen, and Awaru bets a boy she can beat him in a sword fight. Sanai has watched Awaru practice in her garden every week for five years first with a toy sword, then with a real one. Owaru is graceful and deft with it, where Sanai has always fumbled and flailed. Owaru and the boy are wearing white clothes and using wooden swords dipped in red paint. The boy soon looks like a bloody mess and yields, while Owaru is still pristine. You were amazing. Sanai says afterwards, as Owaru is cutting into a celebratory tortoise fruit. Owaru waves a slice of it in her face and Sanai grimaces at the distinct mustiness.
2: You no thank you. How can you not like tortoise fruit?
1: Owaru says, shaking her head. Are you even, Marayan? Sanai sticks her tongue out.
2: It smells like sweaty armpit and tastes even worse.
1: Owaru eagerly bites into the purple flesh of the fruit.
2: You should know though, you kinda looked like a tortoise fruit just then when I wafted it under your nose.
1: Sanai blinks at the wrinkled skin of the tortoise fruit in horror.
2: I looked like that? Don't be so mean.
1: Orawo laughs and nudges her side.
2: (laughs) All right, I'm sorry, but hey, do you think I'll be good enough to defeat the monster someday? No, don't you
1: dare try. Sanai swallows. Orawo must be the best fighter Mariah had seen in generations. Surely if anyone has a chance to ward off the monster and stop more appeasements from happening, it's her. How can Sinai be so selfish as to hold Oaru back for fear of losing her? She says,
2: You look so much like Yomoi in the temple mural when you're moving with that sword.
1: Oaru's breath catches and Sinai suddenly understands what it is she has been really trying to write poetry about all this time. They are alone in Sinai's bedroom and Sinai kisses Oaru. There's tortoise fruit on Oaru's tongue, cloying and bitter. But Sinai doesn't scratch up her nose. She doesn't mind at all. That has
2: to be the boldest thing you've ever done.
1: Oaru whispers, her lips soft and purpled, her hair mussed by Sanai's hands. Guess you inspired me. Sanai says, and Oaru grins and grips Sanai's arms.
2: Remember that time I tried to catch the phoenix
1: fox? Sanai nods. Every day she thinks of the painted woman lit by the phoenix fox fire. The nameless poet buried in the rubble, her face so strangely like Yumwe's. Sanai returned the shadowy wreckage of the old library once, but she has grown, and she can no longer contort herself to fit through that hole in the wall.
2: I wanted to give the fox to you,
1: Oaru says. Oh. It is a Marayan custom for young men to present phoenix foxes to girls they wish to marry. This fact had utterly escaped ten-year-old Sanai, who merely assumed that Oaru wanted the fox as a pretty pet. Sunai raises her eyebrows, stroking Owaru's cheek with her thumb.
2: You already wanted to marry me when you were ten? Owaru shrugs. I didn't know then what it meant. I only knew I wanted to be your friend forever, but now I know what it actually means for me to want to marry you. Her eyes are serious, like a cloud veiling the moon. It means we could both be a part of the next appeasement, if anyone finds out.
1: Sunai closes her eyes against the thought and kisses Owaru again. Tanai is 18, and she is awarded with a scholarship to study at the University of Wimor, one of Karusia's world-famous institutions. If she takes the scholarship, she will be absent from Mariah for a year. She will be absent from Mariah on the day of the next appeasement. Tell me what else there is. She pleads with the impassive image of Yumoy on the wall as everyone else in the prayer hall lifts their cupped hands repeatedly to their faces in the traditional gesture of worship. Tell me. Because if there is more to the story than a sword fight, then maybe she can convince Oaru not to risk her life. And if she has to go to Karusia to find the answers, she will. At the end of the prayer session, when people are either shuffling off or lingering to socialize, Sanai tells Oaru about the scholarship. It's stupid
2: that you have to go to Karusia to learn more about this island. Our island that we've been living on for our whole lives.
1: Owaru spits the words and her frustration echoes in the chambers of Sanai's heart. I know. Sanai wants to run her hands through Oaru's hair to comfort her, but it would be foolish to show such affection in public. She wants to hold Oaru's hand, but they are not children anymore. They will not get away with it, not here where everyone can see. Just promise me,
2: you won't try to take on the monster when the appeasement comes. Please, you're not ready. I'm not ready. I promise.
1: Owaru's voice sounds fervent with honesty. Sunai hopes she has known Owaru for long enough to tell when she is lying. The moon lake is luminous as a heart that brims full with emotion, and Sunai stands at the edge and dips her toes in. Owaru is naked in the water, moonlight dripping from her hair. Owaru wears a smile like a phoenix fox's, sly and burning through Sunai. Owaru's arms are muscled and impatient and open wide. Come on, Sanai. Sanai's fingers hover over the knot that ties the sash around her waist. You're breaking the law, she whispers. Awaru wades closer to Sanai. She lifts the hem of Sanai's gown and kisses Sanai's ankles. We've been breaking the law for a long time, Tortoise Fruit, she says, her dark eyes looking up into Sanai's.
2: When has that ever stopped you?
1: She leaves wet handprints on the skirt of Sanai's gown, droplets tricking down the back of Sanai's calves. Who
2: knows when we'll get to do this again? I'll only be away for a year.
1: Sanai thinks, but Oaru's eyes are darker than fire-scorched walls, and Sanai knows it will be the longest year of their lives. She loosens the knot, her gown joins Oaru's in a careless heap on the sandy bank, and soon her body twines with Owaru's in the water. Misforms forms around them as though the goddess herself wishes to hide them away from the world. Let's skip ahead for a moment. It is Sanai's 19th birthday, and she is chained to a pillar on the pink shore of Moraya. Her lover Oaru is shackled to a different pillar. They cannot touch or kiss each other. The monster is about to rear its ugly heads from the sea, and Sanai is crying, but she is speaking. She is reciting a poem, she wrote, and I am watching, as I always have. I am listening. So how did they get here? Sunai sits on the steps of a lofty sandstone building, shivering in the wind and eating a white tortoise fruit by herself. She's been studying in Winmore for four months, and she hasn't made a single friend. The light in Winmore is muted and cold. The streets narrow and gray, the houses foreboding and tall. People laugh at her accent. The dresses fashionable here are too tight, and she can never get enough air into her lungs. "'The air tastes nothing of salt anyway. "'She misses the sea. "'She runs her fingers over the tough, knobbly, green rind of the fruit. "'Her professor had bought it for the class "'to try an expensive import from Mariah, "'not easily purchased. "'The others in her class had squealed "'over how disgusting the fruit looked and smelled "'as Dr. Janner was dissecting it like a corpse, "'and Sanai thought of Owaru's teeth "'tearing into a wedge of tortoise fruit. "'Owaru's tongue stained purple by its juice.' Sonai had stood up, gathered the mass of fruit in her arms as though it were a baby, and marched out of the classroom. And now she is sitting on rain-wet stone and chewing miserably. How Owaru would tease her if Owaru were here. A girl sits down next to her, Talia from her class, with wheat-colored curls flattened in the drizzle. You really like tortoise fruit, huh? Talia says. I hate it. Sanai says. Let me try a bit, will ya? sanai gives her a small slice and she takes a tentative bite hmm it tastes a lot better than it smells definitely not the texture i was expecting though it's squidgy she finishes the slice throws the rind over her shoulder and grabs another immediately sanai smiles she thinks it must be the first time she has smiled since she set foot in winmore you like it
2: more than i do then
1: so, what are you doing out here, eating something you hate and crying? Talia asks, squinting. Don't tell me that it's just the rain. It's not just the rain. Sanai says, rubbing a hand over her face.
2: It's, it's what a friend calls me. Tortoise fruit.
1: An affectionate nickname? Talia turns the piece of wrinkly rind over in her hand. Is it a cute boy who's waiting for you at home? Sanai hesitates. Um, not a boy. And then, to distract Talia from fixating on that, she launches into an account of everything that's been overwhelming her. She explains that the next appeasement is happening soon, and that she has been trying to conduct research into the history and literature of Mariah to see if she can find any clues as to how Yumoe defeated the monster last time, and why the monster came back. But she still hasn't found anything useful. I just want to find another way. Sanai says,
2: I don't want my friend to do anything rash. I don't want to lose her.
1: Talia presses her shoulder gently against Sanai's. One of my ancestors was part of the first expedition to Mariah. We have an attic full of things left behind by various family members. We've never managed to go through all of it properly, but you're welcome to come and have a look. This is how Sanai finds herself cross-legged on the dusty floor of Talia's ridiculously big attic cross-eyed after three continuous days of rifling through boxes of miscellanea in dim light, unable to believe what she's looking at. It's a roughly colored sketch of Yumue the warrior, copied from the temple wall, sword and monster and moon, and beneath that a sketch of Yumue again, a woman dressed in her same armor, holding not a sword but a scroll open in her hands. Next to her is something a little like a mirror. Or a full moon, a vast circle shaded in silver, with its coils a spiral shadow. Sine isn't sure how to interpret this, but she knows that this Yumoi and the painted poet in the old library are one and the same. She rummages through the rest of the box which contained the sketches, and her hand touches worn leather. She pulls it out of the box, and it falls open on her lap, yellowed pages crammed with neat handwriting. It's a diary. Why do all you rich Carusians have stuff just lying around in your attic that I've only been searching for my entire life? Sunai mutters under her breath to Talia, who's sitting next to her at this dinner. She clenches her fist around her fork. Well, at least now you can read Yumae's poetry, Talia whispers back. Dr. Sotkin, a dear friend of Dr. Janner, carries on explaining to everyone how he recovered the lost manuscript of Yumoy's poems when he was cleaning out his grandfather's house after his grandfather recently passed away. Sunai saws away at her chunk of boiled beef. I'll be publishing a translation later this year, Dr. Sotkin announces. Sunai takes a sip of water and a deep breath. What kind of poetry is it? She asks, proud of how calm and polite she sounds. Sadly, it only survives in fragments, but I've brought a copy of some of them to share with all of you as a preview. Dr. Sotkins digs in his bag and retrieves a sheaf of papers. I believe Dr. Jenner told me you can all read classical Merayan. Some of us better than others. Talia murmurs to Sanai, and Sanai hides a smile behind her napkin. Some of the boys in their class seem to be getting by with barely any knowledge of Morayan. Sinai assumes it must be their wealth that passes their exams for them. She takes the sheet that Dr. Sotkin offers to her and scans it quickly. Her mind whirls dizzily and she pushes away her plate and reads the fragment again, more slowly this time and again. She closes her eyes and envisions the inscrutable moon in the night sky to steady herself. Dr. Sotkin is saying something about a man that Yemoy is drinking with. She compares her love for this man to the moon lake, a blessing that glimmers on and on. Sinai hands the sheets to and holds on to the edge of the table. Dr. Sotkin, she says, and she isn't able to sound calm anymore. Her voice quavers.
2: I don't believe Yumwe is talking about a man. I know it's only a fragment, but it's clear from the grammar that she's writing about a woman.
1: Dr. Sotkin frowns. Did you not hear when I said that this is a love poem?
2: Yes, I know. And I believe that Yomue's beloved is a woman.
1: That's preposterous. It's simply impossible.
2: You think it's impossible that Yomwe loved another woman?
1: What you are speaking of is highly illegal and punishable by death, young lady. Dr. Sakin sniffs. In both Mariah and Carusia, yes, Sané is extremely aware. Are we to believe that, that Yumoe shared these poems with the public and was not executed for her sins? Well,
2: she warded off the monsters, so there's no appeasement.
1: Dr. Sakin tugs haughtily at his kavad. You do realize that it is possible to execute people without feeding them to a monster, as you barbarians love to do? Love? Sunai's voice is shrill to her own ears. Drums thunder in her ribcage.
2: You think we love having to feed people to a monster every ten years
1: to keep it from destroying our whole island? Doctor Sotkin's face is pink as the sand on Mariah's beaches. I'm going to have to ask you to leave. Yes, Dr. Janner joins in. Sinai, your behavior of late has been extremely rude and disruptive, and I'm afraid we cannot tolerate this. Dr. Sotkin is the foremost expert on classical Mirayan, and he will not be insulted by your bumbling reading of this poem. But she's right, Talia protests, jabbing at the sheet of paper. Dr. Janner, Sinai's right. Look at this line here. It's all right. Sanai says, putting her hand on Talia's arm. I'm leaving. Sanai's head is still spinning from the fragment of Yumwe's poetry. It was so much like the poems that she has been writing about. Awaru, folded into envelopes and sent across the ocean to her lover. One was about the glow of sweat and moon water on Awaru's skin the night they drifted together in the moon lake, the last night they spent together. And now, this letter from her mother, she sinks to the floor of the post room and clutches her knees. She is going to be sick. The door creaks open. She looks up and Talia is there. I am so sorry, Talia says. You are such a fearsome warrior back there speaking up to Dr. Sockin like that. He's utterly dreadful. Janner too. I want to lock them both in my attic and never let them out. Janner revoked your scholarship, but he hasn't even tried to suspend me. Sonai stares at Talia and cannot speak. Talia doesn't know about the letter yet. She thinks Sanai is just upset about what happened at the dinner, but the world is crumbling at Sanai's feet, and Talia has no idea. A smile stretches across Talia's face. Can you believe your legendary Yumwei? One of us? Sanai's shoulders loosen a little. One of us? One of us, Talia repeats and holds her hand out to Sanai, and Sanai understands. Instead of taking Talia's hand, she lifts up the letter and gives it to Talia. Talia reads it, and is speechless, too. She sits down next to Sanai, and together they watch the flickering light bulb. It is no moon, but it soothes somehow. Eventually, Talia asks, When is the next appeasement? Will you make it back in time?
2: If I leave at dawn, I might.
1: Sanai says hoarsely. You'll be arrested too if you go back, won't you? Sanai nods. But you're definitely going. Sanai nods again. Good luck, Talia whispers. If you don't die, write me a poem. You have my address. She kisses Sunai's forehead. Sunai crosses the ocean home. She prays to the goddess. She prays to Yumue. She writes. Which is what brings us here to Sunai's 19th birthday and Sunai and Awaru on the beach where they first met 10 years ago. I love you. Sunai says to Owaru, there is white sea spray in Owaru's wind-blown hair. And if Sunai's plan doesn't succeed, she wants this to be the last thing she ever sees. She closes her eyes. The waves lap the shore. Her lungs are full of salt air. The moon caresses her face with its white light. She opens her mouth. The truth comes out. Sunai wrote that silly poem when she was 12, where I saved my husband from the monster. I laughed when I heard her read it to her classmates. Now she is a much better poet, and she has learnt so much from sketches and diaries and mistranslated fragments, and this is what she tells the Miraians. Four hundred years ago, Yumue loved another woman, and they had flowers and wine and stars. They chased phoenix foxes together in the valleys. They ate tortoise fruit and kissed each other's mouths purple. They wrapped themselves in moonlight. Yumue was skilled with the sword, but even more skilled with words, and she was the goddess's favorite. She could not stand by and watch a monster kill more people in her town. She wove a spell out of poetry and enchanted the monster, led it to the moon lake where it slumbered for as long as she lived, and longer, because she taught others the poem. But the Carusians came. They brought their laws with them, and they knew how powerful fear was, how to control a people with it. Fire bloomed in the library, in the temple, fresh paint dried on the wall. Yimwe the poet, was erased from history. The monster was awoken, and anyone who caused trouble could be thrown into its devouring jaws. Now you tell me, I cannot love Uraru. We
2: chase a phoenix fox that Yumoya tamed once. Reborn from the ashes of the library, it hides poems in its fur. Tell the phoenix fox, I cannot love Uraru. We eat tortoise fruit, grown from centuries old trees, roots as deep as our island. It hides poems in its rind. Tell the tortoise through, I cannot love Oaru, We bathe in the moon lake Yomwe drank from, water sacred to the goddess, it hides poems in its bed. Tell the moon lake, I cannot love Oaru. Tell the goddess, I cannot love Oaru. Tell Yomwe, tell her and the woman she loves. Go back in time and bind her to this pillar and tell her she was wrong.
1: The monster rises out of the sea, torrents of water cascading from its back. Oaru was arrested because of Sunai's poetry, because Oaru's father found the incriminating poems, because Sunai had sent so many and they overflowed, spilled, flooded Oaru's room. Poems alight with the memories of all that Oaru and Sunai did together, all the times they were wide-eyed travelers in the landscape of each other's bodies, all the smoldering hearths they built in the secret corners of each other's hearts. The monster bellows and the earth quakes and Sinai is not afraid. She knows she is not the first who has been here. She is not the first who has done this.
2: Let her tell you, she is me. Let her open her mouth and sing the monster to sleep
1: again. Sinai's pores still have the magic blessing of moon water in them and I am with her. Through her I sing, I was here like her, I loved like her. I fought the monster and won and she will too. If you visit the Temple of Moon Goddess today, you will see this scene painted alongside my mural in the prayer hall. The monster walks, spellbound, across the island, and the Marians walk with it. Every one of their faces slack with awe. Sunai leads them, freed from her shackles. She holds Oaru's hand. The End
0: The Lamentations of Old Money is copyright chanter 2019. Tell the Phoenix Fox, Tell the Tortoise Fruit, is copyright Cynthia So, 2019. This recording is a Creative Commons Attribution Non-Commercial No Derivatives License, which means you can share it with anyone you'd like, but please don't change or sell it. Our theme is Aurora Borealis by Bird Creek, available through the Google Audio Library. You can support Glittership by checking out our Patreon at patreon.com slash subscribing to our feed, or by leaving reviews on iTunes. You can also support us by buying your own copy of the summer 2018 issue at glittership.com buy, or by picking up a free audiobook at audibletrial.com glittership. Thanks for listening, and we'll be back soon with a reprint of Instar by Carol Narby.